Okay, so today we are looking at the commandments. Um, so we've been through the first part of the third pillar of the catechism, the part of the catechism um, in that first section that is looking at the principles of moral theology, right? So we went through the call to beatitude, being made in the image and likeness of God, um, what it means to the sources of judging an action to be good and evil, the three sources, you know, the object, the end, the intention, um, circumstances. Um, we're now looking at the next section of the moral pillar in the Catechism, which is taking us into the commandments. So what I want to do with you today is give you an introduction into kind of thinking about the commandments in general and just make a few points about why the Catechism chose to structure itself around the, ca the commandments. Um, and then we'll look at what are called the five precepts of the church that specify in particular um, the living out of the first part of the commandments, our duties to God. So that's basically what we're going to do today. So if you look to my lecture notes, um, first page is all on the structure of the catechism. So to say there, the structure of part three, our life in Christ, um, the, the two parts, section one that we've already been through, which is a, a long introduction with many subsections. And disproportionately, we've spent more than half of our course on what in the catechism is maybe a third. So I was told to focus on the principles with you, so that's why we've spent longer on that section. So it means when we're going through this latter part, we're going to be going through it at much greater speed. And there are lots of things we are going to miss out. We're going to kind of give an edited highlights. Section two of this third pillar is all structured around the Ten Commandments. And I note there is that the Ten Commandments are the traditional catechetical structure for morality. So if we look down the centuries, how the patristics structured their catechesis, how the early church structured catechesis, when they talked about the moral life, they structured it around the catechism. So, uh, rather, they structured it around the Ten Commandments. So the editors of the catechism decided that they would, in keeping with the ancient tradition, follow that same pattern. So notice by contrast, St. Thomas's Summa Theologica was structured around virtues and vices. So if you look at St. Thomas's Summa Theologica, there is not a listing of the commandments. He talks about the virtues, the beauty of the virtuous life, and then will refer to the commandments as he's going through the virtues. Um, but that's not traditionally how we've done catechesis. Um, so the catechism's editors chose to follow what they call the proven framework of the dialogue, uh, decalogue, rather. Um, so Cardinal Schoenborn, uh, you know, he was the main editor of the catechism. Um, so that was a quote from him. And then I quote him again. The expositions of the individual commandments all begin on a positive note by drawing attention to the virtues and attitudes 
that correspond to the commandments in question. They give the example there that the article on the first commandment, you know, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, no graven images, that then starts by expounding the virtues of faith, hope, and charity. So the Catechism has tried to both incorporate a virtue focus, but around the structure of the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Now, as I was reading commentaries on the Catechism in this regard, um, Ratzinger, who you know then, before he was Pope, was running the CDF, um, and he was also one of the prime compilers of the Catechism. He makes the point uh, the relevance of it drawing attention to the commandments because our world needs to remember that there are such things as commandments. There are things we do need to follow. That it's not just that the new law and the nice cosy Jesus Christ has got rid of all the awkward commandments. No, that these are actually part of what a Christian lives. Then Cardinal Ratzinger argued for structuring the Catechism around the Ten Commandments by noting that the Decalogue underpinned the Sermon on the Mount and all of St. Paul's moral instruction. So if you were to try and explain Jesus' Sermon on the Mount without having the, cat, the Ten Commandments, it doesn't really work. You need that as a, a foundation. Um, I then quote from the New Testament, that's the Romans, Owe no one anything except to love each other, one another. For he who loves his neighbour has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not kill, you shall not covet, um, and any other commandment are all summed up in this sentence, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. So, love is the fulfilling of the law, but that doesn't mean you can then forget the law, because if you do, you don't know what love looks like in practice. So, you need the laws, you need the commandments to know what love looks like. You know, is cheating on my wife? Does that contradict love? Well, if I didn't have the Ten Commandments, I wouldn't know that cheating on my wife contradicted love. Um, we need to know what love looks like. Love has a form, has a structure, and the commandments articulate that to us. I so say any attempted pitting of the New Testament against the law mistakenly identifies the Decalogue with the law. Whereas when St. Paul's talking about the law that he says we've been set free from, he's talking about the Torah, not the moral law articulated in Decalogue. So the Torah included all the rituals, you know, the don't eat pork, the sacrificing in the temple. St. Paul's saying that's the law, the old. He's not saying we get rid of the moral life, get rid of the Ten Commandments, that's, which is why St. Paul repeats those commandments um, and articulates the living out of them in his epistles. So Ratzinger says, the moral teaching of the Decalogue thus retains its full validity, but now it has its place in the living environment of grace. Following Christ as his disciple goes hand in hand with a comprehension 
of all individual commandments in the light of the one commandment to love. So I'm guessing what I'm saying there isn't news to you, um, but I'm just trying to articulate the point. The, the Catechism had a, its editors a choice to make how to structure, and they chose the traditional structure, and they chose it because you do need the, the form of the commandments to know what love looks like. Okay, over the page. So I've got a few words here about the Decalogue itself. Um, and let's see, at your stage you haven't done a course on the Decalogue in the Old Testament? No, okay, so I'm sure you will cover the Decalogue from a scriptural perspective, um, but just a few introductory comments. Um, so you may or may not know, the, so the word Decalogue, that's what we're referring to when we're talking about the Ten Commandments. The, the term Decalogue literally means ten words. So this is what the, the Jews would have been referring to. They wouldn't have referred to the Ten Commandments. They'd have referred to the Decalogue, meaning the ten words. So that they've been spoken to us by the Lord God. Do you know that's very different from, like, you know, the, the Eastern philosophies when you've got some man's wisdom that he's imparting to you. No, these are ten things that God has spoken to us. That's what the Decalogue Context of the Exodus and the Covenant and Mount Sinai. So when does God speak these words to his chosen people? After he rescues them, after he saves them. And he then establishes with them on Mount Sinai a covenant, an abiding relationship. Um, and I'm sure you'll do a lot on covenants in your scripture studies, but they are... An agreement between two people, some models a contract between two people, between God and his chosen people. And those contracts, as in all contracts, have conditions. If you do this, then I will do that. If you keep my commandments, then you will have the promised land. So, you know, we all know the the kingdom was destroyed with being conquered by the, the Babylonians. The people were taken off into exile. Why? The narrative of the scriptures, because they didn't keep God's commandments. They didn't keep the covenant. So they were taken away. They were purified. They were brought back as a purified people, restored to the land in keeping the covenant. Sorry, back to my notes. Exodus and Covenant. It was after the saving event of the Exodus that God revealed the Decalogue and established the covenant with his chosen people. And this is the essential context, um, as the Catechism puts it, to understand the Decalogue. Right, the ten words that bring life and freedom from the slavery of the law. Um, if you love the Lord your God by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his ordinances, then you shall live and multiply. So that's what it says in Deuteronomy. That's what's quoted in the Catechism. And the 
covenant, God's chosen people commit themselves to follow the Lord by keeping his commandments. He commits himself to be their saving God. I'm guessing some of you are familiar with Scott Hahn's books and so forth. You know, he writes a lot on covenant themes. It's probably the last century there's been quite a, a renewed appreciation of covenant as a model of the whole relationship. But a covenant has conditions, and the conditions include the Ten Commandments. You're all familiar with the concept of the Ten Commandments having two tables, you know, those that refer to God and those that refer to our neighbour. And you're all familiar that the Protestants number those differently to the Catholic numbering? So, um, Martin Luther and so forth, they were against us having statues in churches, graven images. So the way they number the, the commandments makes not having graven images a commandment all of its own. Um, whereas the Catholic numbering follows St. Augustine um, and numbers them as the catechism has listed there. Um, I can remember when I was in seminary, a survey came out um, in the media showing they did a, an opinion poll of um, Anglican vicars and asked them how many of them could list the Ten Commandments. Um, and something like 20% of them could list the Ten Commandments. Um, I can remember with a group of seminarians in the our common room, um, sitting around and laughing about those horrible Anglicans, you know, useless Anglicans. And then somebody said, what are the Ten Commandments? Uh, and there were half a dozen of us sat there, and between half a dozen of us, I think we came up with nine. Um, and I think a couple of those are a bit questionable. Um, so um, it's important for you as a priest to know the commandments by number, be able to refer to them by number, to be able to refer to sins against the fourth commandment, against the sixth commandment. With your parish youth groups, to teach them to be able to number the, the Ten Commandments. But that means you need to be able to number them. Um, so the Catechism's numbering is, the traditional Catholic numbering has been at least from St. Augustine. What's the numbering system in the Bible? Both. Well, actually, the Bible doesn't number them. Oh, yeah, no, no. So, so it doesn't say one, two, three, four. So that's what it says there are ten, the ten words, um, but the Bible doesn't say one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. So there is, that's why in the tradition with the Protestants, it's not surprising that a different numbering system has existed, but um, obviously if you're a Catholic and you're using different books, be careful that you're using a book that follows the Catholic numbering scheme, otherwise it all gets very confusing. Yeah, I wonder if I could make that a quiz in the final exam.
anyway, we should hope that seminarians don't need to be quizzed on the Ten Commandments. Um, so I'm not going to read them all through to you here. I'm going to hope that you do know them, that you're better formed than I was as a, as a seminarian. I think young men coming forward now are generally better formed. Um, okay, back to my notes. So I've listed there the two tables, all in italics. I note that the Catechism says that these are a coherent whole, where the two tables shed light on one another. One cannot honour another person without blessing God his creator. One cannot adore God without loving all men his creatures. The Decalogue brings man's religious and social life into unity. So that they do all feed together. I know this is all fairly basic, but this I'm supposed to be doing this covering of basics with you, so that's what we're going through today. Okay, on to page three. Um, so, just to start spelling a bit more out of content. So I say putting God first. If we're going to phrase what the commandments are about, where they start, well, the first table starts with God. And I put in bold, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now note that mistaken catechesis often speaks of love, but fails to note that the Lord Jesus calls us to order and structure love in such a way that he comes first. So when I'm planning my life, when I'm planning my day, when parents are planning their weekend activities, um, God comes first. This is the structure of the commandments. Quoting the Catechism, God has loved us first. The love of the one God is recalled in the first of the ten words. The commandments then make explicit the response of love man is called to give his God. Um, okay, and then I note the structure um, that's in the first, the content of the first table in the Catechism. So, you know, it's making the articulation love of God isn't just a, a sentiment. Love of God has content that goes with it. So, First, it talks about how we commit ourselves to him in faith, hope, and love, divine charity. So that's all articulated there. The meaning of serving him alone and no false gods is articulated in the teaching on adoration, on prayer, and on sacrifice. And then negatively, if you, you know, where does the church's teaching on superstition, idolatry, divination, magic, and so forth. Um, it's in this section here. Okay, what about the Sabbath? Um, so the third commandment, um, honor the Lord's day and keep it holy. So the Lord's Day, the Sabbath. So 
the catechism has quite a, a full and um, a, a nice section in, on the meaning of the Sabbath, um, not just for the Jews, but for us too. So that, uh, what does the Sabbath recall to us? Um, well, first, of course, it recalls the creation, that it is the seventh day. So in keeping the Sabbath, we're reminding everything comes um, from God. Catechism notes also, um, it reminds us of the exodus, of the liberation from Egypt, and with that, therefore, of all of God's saving activity. Would you mind reading the... You shall remember that you were a servant in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out thence with a mighty hand and outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. God entrusted the Sabbath to Israel to keep as a sign of the irrevocable covenant. The Sabbath is for the Lord, holy and set apart for the praise of God, the work of creation, and the saving acts on behalf of Israel. Um, and then the saving event, the liberating event, is obviously the Lord Jesus' um, death and resurrection. So that the day of the resurrection is the day of the new creation, the new covenant, the new Sabbath. And so, as early as we have any records, Christians observed Sunday as the Lord's Day. So Sunday, is, I say, is the fulfillment of the Jewish Passover. Josh, can you read those two quotes there? In Christ's Passover. In Christ's Passover, Sunday fulfills the spiritual truth of the Jewish Sabbath and announces man's eternal rest in God. The celebration of Sunday observes the moral commandment inscribed by nature in the human heart to render to God an outward, <coughs> visible, public, and regular worship as a sign of his universal benefit. Uh, beneficence, beneficence, to all. Okay. His universal goodness, beneficent, beneficence. No, I can't say it. <laughs> um, so we owe something back to God. Sabbath does that. Sabbath reminds us of what he's done for us. And in our worship on the Sabbath expresses what we need to give to him. don't know how many of you are familiar, Pope John Paul II issued um, an apostolic letter, Dies Domine, keeping the Lord's Day holy. Um, this is, it's, a, it's a quite beautiful reflection. I think it's, it's in the tradition of the church, the longest magisterial reflection on what it means, what Sunday means. Um, and he reflects on those themes we've just touched on. What kind of rest is the Sabbath supposed to be? A rest in the Lord. The rest of the resurrection is when kind of everything is being put right. Kind of the rest that comes with the peace after the battle. And we're supposed to have that rest in the Lord, in his day, his day of victory, um, in our observance of it. And that Sunday, therefore, should be more than just getting to Mass. So keeping the Lord's Day holy has this minimal component, getting to Mass. Um, 
but it being a day of rest, the day of prayer, a day of the Lord, is what the Sabbath is truly about. All of which you've heard before. Okay, so I'm now going to go in a bit more detail, and hopefully this, some of this will be, at least in some of the detail new to you, the five precepts of the church. So what spells out for us what that first table set of commandments looks like in practice? Well, the church has issued various precepts, and what the catechism calls the five precepts, spell out those obligations in some detail. So, on to page four. So, say at the top of the page, later lectures of this course will summarise the Catechism's teaching on the second table of the commandment. So our next lecture will be on marriage, family. Um... But the rest of today's lecture is going to be about the five precepts by which the church specifies certain practices that we must follow to live out this first table of the commandments, right? those duties we owe to God. You're familiar with this as a concept, the precepts of the church, as a phrase? Um, at a pastoral level, you know, precepts are very unfashionable. You know, in the parish, if you say, oh, well, it's the precept of the church, there's a lot of people for whom that will mean nothing. Um, and part of our duty as pastors, as teachers, is actually to indicate why it's an essential part of being a Christian, a Catholic. That we're not just private individuals. Being part of a church, we need something articulated to us and how to live this out. And part of what is articulated is so foundational not just all the details of canon law, but these five precepts articulate these basics of the living of our duties towards God. Go back to my notes here. The precepts of the church. The church, our mother, gives us precepts in addition to the Ten Commandments. Church law makes determinate many aspects of the moral law that are present in the natural moral law or in the Ten Commandments, but only in an indeterminate way. So it's, there's a commandment that's kind of out there and vague and general, but something needs to make it specific. Well, the precepts are seeking to make something specific. For example, the natural law requires that humans fast, but that requirement is general. Either natural law doesn't say how often to fast, or when to fast, or how much to fast. Thus, as a loving mother, which is how the catechism contextualizes this, the church law determines specific days when fasting is obligatory. So they say the catechism lists this in the section on the moral life, church as mother and teacher. Um, and if you're reading the catechism, we did actually um, you should have read, actually, these precepts section maybe a month ago. Um, so this is slightly out of sequence, but, you know, a lot, because I'm summarising, we're not doing the exact sequence, but this is in the context of the commandments. 
So just to make the point, what do we mean by the word precept? Well, we mean something, as I say, that binds under pain of sin. So it's not just something that we're asked to do, not something we're recommended to do, a commandment that binds under pain of sin. So quoting the Catechism, the obligatory character of these positive laws decreed by the pastoral authorities is meant to guarantee to the faithful the indispensable minimum. So this isn't expressing for you a high ideal, the indispensable minimum. Do you know what's meant by the word positive law? So it's, it's something added, said directly, um, positive, a, an extra detail that's been articulated. So it's not just general. So some authority has decreed it. You're all familiar with the Didache? You heard the word the Didache? So that literally means the teaching of the, of the apostles. So pretty much um, after the Bible itself, the earliest recorded document we have in Christian history <coughs> is this document called the Didache, which summarizes um, the teaching of the apostles. And in this context, what is significant is that it summarizes many church laws that the apostles bound on the faithful. So this practice of the church as a loving mother specifying laws that weren't said by Jesus or by the Lord were general but are then made specific, that practice goes back right to the beginning. So see, the church has issued such precepts since our earliest days with a didache of the apostles prescribing Wednesdays and Fridays as days of fasting. And this practice is scriptural. So we read in Luke, he who hears you, hears me. He who rejects you, rejects me. And Matthew, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. That our pastors have the authority to bind us. You're all aware of Wednesdays and Fridays were in the early church the days of fasting. So Fridays has become a fairly diminished practice in the modern church. Um, but it being Friday is very ancient. Um, the Jews, if you remember, you know, the Lord makes allusions, had two days of fasting. The Christians chose two different days. Um, in part, I guess, to be different, but also because they have a different significance. So we keep Ash Wednesday um, and Good Friday, Friday being the day of the Lord's death, Friday being the obvious day of the week to be particularly focused on fasting and penance. I know how many precepts are there, I asked the question. So the Catechism lists five, but almost Bizarrely, it then immediately adds another one, a sixth, on tithing. So, although it's drawing attention to the five, actually there are more than five, the things that are decreed that are obligatory. And different historical compilations will list either more or less than five precepts of the church. 
sometimes grouping some of them together. So if you read some ancient saint that talks about four precepts or another that talks about ten precepts, um, that's why. But the concept that the church has the power, the duty, to guide her children by specifying these additional precepts goes right back to the beginning. Um, have you all heard the principle I articulate there? That which is physically impossible cannot be morally obligatory. You might think that's self-evident. It's not necessarily. And so I give two examples. Someone who cannot physically attend Mass cannot be obliged to do so. And in our COVID-19 <coughs> lockdown context, if there's no public Mass, there can't be an obligation to attend it, right? So you will get, particularly with older Catholics, who somehow got the Sunday Mass obligation drummed into them, but no real connection of somehow how it applied. They will come and confess to you the fact um, that I was in a car accident and I've been unable to get out of bed for six months, so I need to confess the fact I haven't been to Mass. Well, you know, just why on earth are you confessing that? Um, you, you are not under obligation if you cannot do it. Like when we were in my parish, when we were coming out of the first lockdown, because um, England's gone back into lockdown, as if this Sunday they no longer have public Mass for a month. Um, but the first time, as we were coming out, I was gathering together a group of parish stewards um, and one of them was asking, you know, um, well, we need to be, when will confessions be? Because we all need to be, confess the fact we haven't been to Mass for three and a half months. Well, there was no Mass for them to go to, so how could they think they needed to confess it? But there's an older generation who somehow got the law drummed in but didn't get an articulation of what, in a sense, any law has as its normal application. If it's not physically possible, it's not morally obligatory. And in my experience, that's something you've just got to be patient with, with old people in confession, um, rather than call them stupid or something. Um, And by the time you're ordained, a lot of that generation will increasingly be dying off. So for your generation, increasingly the problem will be old people will feel they have no obligations at all, because you know, that's the baby boomer attitude. Um, so to be articulating, no, there are such things as commandments, they're there in the Bible, the Lord Jesus reiterated them, he gave his apostles and their successors the authority to specify them for us. This is part of what following the Lord means. Loving God has content. Okay, let's walk through in a bit more detail now what the five precepts are. First precept, um, Sunday Mass. Uh, Pat, can you read that precept or that 
catechism. The first precept, we shall attend Mass on Sundays and Holy Days of Obligation, requires the benefit to participate in the Eucharistic celebration when the Christian community gathers together on the day commemorating the resurrection of the Lord. Okay, so each of the catechism paragraphs has a quotation like that of the precept itself with some explanatory comment. And I note there, quoting both canon law um, and the catechisms, that a pastor can, it says, for just cause, dispense in individual cases someone from this obligation. Or a pastor can grant a commutation of the obligation into other pious works. So commutation, commuting, what does that mean? So a dispensation can include reducing rather than removing an obligation. And then I quote um, from the, the so the, in, here in America, there's kind of the official or semi-official commentary on canon law, big fat green book. It's about that thick, it's massive. Quoting that there, it says, for example, the pastor could commute the obligation to attend mass on Sunday to another day each week. Or I say, for example, oblige someone about to go on vacation to say three rosaries rather than attend that coming Sunday Mass. So someone comes to you and they say, um, Father, we're going on vacation to um, Uzbekistan. Um, and um, we don't think there's going to be a Catholic church there. What, what do we do on Sunday? So they are asking to be dispensed from the Sunday obligation. Um, so you can either say, I dispense you, or you could say, I commute the mass obligation to and specify a prayer or some pious practice for them to do. I would give you the warning, if you are going to commute, I replace it with another practice, Injustice, you owe it to them to be clear what you are requiring because it is then a requirement. So, you know, it's a bit like when you go to confession and a priest says something vague about, oh, you know, um, go out and look at the crucifix. Well, for how long, you know, or what? That it's helpful to people to be specific. Um, if you as a pastor you have authority, you are obliging someone, and in confession the canonical penance assigned is an obligation that's put on someone. There's therefore without a duty for it to be clear so someone knows they have or haven't satisfied it. Now you can imagine there are Catholics who simply won't go on vacation to, to a place where they can't get to Sunday Mass. Um, and so John Paul II he talks about how pastors have a duty to remind people that when they are on vacation, they still have a duty to worship God. They still have a duty to get to Sunday Mass. And these days with Google, you know, they should be planning their holiday, their vacation, looking for where they can get to Mass. But if at the stage someone comes to you, they've already booked their vacation to Uzbekistan because it's very cheap, I'm guessing, Actually, a friend of mine, a priest friend, went to Uzbekistan on vacation. He had to hire a gunman, two gunmen, in fact, to
to accompany him everywhere he went. Um, but he said he had a lovely time. <laughs> anyway, um, he could take mass with him because he's a priest. Um, so, John Paul II is saying we should be telling people to kind of plan that into their vacation. But if they haven't, and by the time they've come to you, they've already booked the flight, you as a pastor have the authority to dispense them from the obligation. And you can, you know, you don't need to think long to realize there's obviously a risk in how you do that, that you can make it seem too minor a thing. Um, that actually they should have thought about that in their planning originally. Um, and I would always ask the question, well, have you looked on Google? Is there a church? Can you restructure your traveling so that on the Sunday you're by a city where there will be a mass? Um, but there's also a general pastoral principle. We don't want to drive people away by making the law impossibly difficult. But we still need to express it in such a way that at the very least at the rest of the year they're still thinking Sunday is a serious thing you're all aware that a pastor has this authority pastor does assistant associate priest doesn't so the, the pastor has that uh, I'm not a canon lawyer it's a little more vague when you are tra a chaplain traveling with a group but generally speaking, in that context, you acquire on a temporary basis with that group a pastor's degree of authority in terms of being able to dispense while you're responsible for it. Okay. As a pastor, could you use other obligations besides masses? Masses are like the important thing to dispense with. Um, there are other things you can commute. The, there isn't in a tidy... Well, there are books that call um, various... There's a pastoral companion for priests. There's a, a book called um, The Canonical Rights and Obligations of a Pastor that puts it all together. Um, Sunday Mass is the most common one, but fasting that we're going to come on to would be another. Um, yeah. Um, the pastor doesn't need to do anything for somebody that's sick and literally can't get to Mass. He doesn't need to do anything. Issue of dispensation is just. Right, so in that case, somebody might ask you, and I think in the phrasing and practice, there's kind of a, a double capacity there that you as a priest can put someone's conscience at ease by telling them, I as your pastor am telling you I'm dispensing you until for a month or for two months. Um, or depending on their physical condition to say, as your pastor I'm telling you the obligation doesn't hold. But you're right, there have been many occasions when actually to ask for a dispensation is redundant. But someone who's wanting to put themselves in a position where they won't be able to fulfill the obligation, I'm putting myself 
into a place where I can get to Mass on Sunday, that's not the same as breaking my leg and not being able to get there. Okay, first precept. Second precept, annual confession. Uh, Carlos, could you read that? Second precept, you should confess your sins at least once a year. Ensure its preparation for the Eucharist and the reception of the sacrament of reconciliation, which continues baptism's work of conversion and forgiveness. You all heard this one before? This was possibly a bit more common in terms of what does get quoted, the second precepts of the church. You've got to get to confession once a year at Easter. Technically, technically speaking, it doesn't have to be Easter, but the, another obligation is to get to communion at Easter. So if you're going to be ready for communion at Easter, you need to get to confession at Easter to be ready for it. But the precept itself doesn't say at Easter. Yeah, so you'll hear, and this is part of, particularly with an older generation, you'll get more of them coming to confession in Lent and Easter in order to fulfill this precept. So this precept says literally just once a year. So how often should we be going? That's what I tried therefore to spell out here with a little section I've called how often to confess. Now I articulate there a principle that the frequency of our use of this sacrament should be proportionate, I say, to two things. First, the quality of our examination of conscience and our confession. For example, don't confess weekly if you omit confessing venial sins and have no mortal sins. You know, if, you, if that's all you're looking for um, and you're going to the confessional weekly, well then it's become, that just doesn't measure up if, that, if you're only examining yourself on mortal matters and you're not ticking those boxes. B, and this is um, for seminarians an important thing to be thinking, your frequency of confession should depend on how much we avail of the other means towards salvation and holiness. For example, someone who makes a daily holy hour and attends daily mass should correspondingly confess more than just monthly. Whereas conversely, someone who doesn't engage in mental prayer or weekday mass will gain little from a weekly confession of being your sins. So an image I often use is of a car engine. Yeah, so in a car engine, you've got lots of moving parts. Now, if one of those parts starts moving really fast, while the rest doesn't, then the whole engine will get thrown out of whack and be destroyed. As the car goes faster, all those bits in the engine together start moving faster. So in the spiritual life, your frequency of confession should depend on the frequency of the other things advancing as well. Unless you're dealing with questions of mortal sins where you need to rush to confession so that's kind of a different category but if we're talking about venial sins then that, that's what the 
portion of frequency should be. Okay, I then give some categories of advice. So monthly confession. So I'd say this is what would be kind of called the standard advice. So a parishioner who attends Mass only on Sundays doesn't really do much more beyond the minimum. How often should they be going to confession? Monthly. Weekly confession. So I say this is advised by, among others, St. Francis de Sales. So that book I gave you, The Introduction to the Devout Life. Um, and he is summarizing the tradition before him. Point out in terms of law. So weekly confession was actually required if you were a religious right up until the 1917 code. So it's become, in the new code of canon law, a lot more has just been recommended rather than required. But weekly confession wasn't obligation. It was required until then, if you were religious. And I know weekly confession is something common among you know, the various new ecclesial movements. Um, and I'll be honest with you, when I was a young priest, I had been so badly catechized myself, and my experience of confession even in seminary was such that I don't know, my first five years as a priest, when I was meeting young Catholics in the various new ecclesial movements who had had a better formation than I had, and were going to confession weekly, it struck me as odd. But it, there's bits of the church where there's a renewal going on. Part of that renewal, you will find, will often include weekly confession. Then even daily confession. So... Um, John Paul II's personal example um, supposedly had daily confession, at least at some periods of his life. So over the page then, where does that put yearly, annual confession? Well, that is the legal minimum. But I notice a legal minimum isn't a recommendation. And note this... Also, as I've said already, this legal minimum annual confession need not per se be at Easter tide, but it needs to be at Easter tide if it's to facilitate the worthy reception of Holy Communion at Easter tide, which is the next precept. So, what I'm saying there on the frequency of confession? Any comments, thoughts? Are you all better formed than I was in seminary? <laughs> yeah? I, was, I just remember growing up in a state going in once a year. And uh, started actually trying to grow up all this, and I was like, I want to go to confession. And were there any particular sources that encouraged that that you came across? I hate going to confession. Everybody hates going to confession, but I love coming out of confession. I can't get that feeling anywhere else. Mm -hmm. I can't get that Anyone else anything to chip in? Sam? Um, I mean, I kind of, I knew this from the thinking about it, it seems almost shockingly just 
I'm not really trying to criticize the church, I'm just saying that it's just like, you basically go the whole year without confession. It just seems like maybe it would be better to recommend more than just one. Okay, you twice used the word recommend. Mm -hmm. The church doesn't recommend annual confession, she requires it. Uh, well, that's an important distinction. So what are there in these precepts? These are the requirement. If you don't do this in itself, it's a sin. Um, so the recommendation, the church would recommend much more. And all kinds of documents of the church recommend frequent confession. Yes, though that would then connect with the thing you can't, you're not morally obliged to do what's physically impossible. So if you live in the upper reaches of the Andes Mountains and you don't see a priest for 10 years, um, then there's a whole bunch of these that just you're unable to fulfill and therefore the obligation doesn't hold. But, but you're right, I think that is part of the wider context. So our parish structure doesn't exist everywhere in the world. But it is kind of the norm. So when church law is describing normal Catholic life, a parish with a priest is how things are structured to be, unless you're in mission territory, which is a lot of the world. Okay, the, the principle I articulated about how to balance what's an appropriate frequency of getting to confession with your other use of spiritual means. Have you heard that before? Does it make sense? It makes sense. I've never heard of it either. So when you are hearing confessions and you hear people go to confession, um, Sometimes, you know, you never want to discourage somebody, but you might need to be thinking in your own mind in terms of what advice you're going to give. Is what they're saying proportionate to the frequency of their confession? And more frequently, I'll ha I've had people over the years who will confess a very articulate confession, a good confession, but they've indicated they only go to confession every few months. And I would challenge them on that very point. I'd say, look, you make a very good confession. You know yourself, you're, you prefer to your prayer life. You should therefore be using this other tool to a proportionate degree. Okay, third precept, Easter Communion. Um, Nick, can you read this one? The third precept, you shall humbly receive your Creator and Holy Communion at least during the Easter season. Guarantees as a minimum the reception of the Lord's body and blood in connection with the Paschal feasts, the origin and center of the Christian liturgy. Okay, and then I know, I say in earlier ages of the Church, Holy Communion was a less casual event than it is now. Receiving Holy Communion was taken seriously and only occurred occasionally. 
so recent communion was so rare in fact that in the year 1215 at the Lateran Council it was decreed that it should be received at least once a year at Eastertide. Now our current practice where people just waltz up to communion whatever they're doing and whatever they've done um, and certainly whenever they go to Mass um, it is very far removed from any other period of the church's history. It's historically, if you look at that, that is weird. Why is that happening now? Something's gone wrong. There have been other times when the balance has been in the other direction. The communion has been so rare that the church has had to specify at least a minimum. You must receive it once a year. And then I note, I say annual confession and annual communion gives us an indication that the frequency of these two should be related. So weekly communion and twice yearly confession would fail in that regard. So there needs to be, if someone's wanting communion every week, they should be getting to confession more than the once a year minimum. Again, thinking historically, so even a hundred years ago, receiving communion was fairly rare. When Pope Pius X, in his various works of reform and renewal in the church, encouraged frequent communion, that went with the promotion of frequent confession. So that's why in the build-up to the Second Vatican Council, we'd reached the stage where it was fairly normative for people to be going to communion once a week, but also a lot of them were going to normal people um, at least once a month and then somehow after the council we lost confession but then kept communion possibly even more frequent um, okay fourth precept Luciano can you read that for us these days the fourth precept you shall keep Holy the holy days of obligation completes the Sunday observance by participation in the principal liturgical feast, which honor the mysteries of the Lord, the Virgin Mary, and the saints. So we've got what is it, about half a dozen holy days of obligation scattered through the year. So this precept is just saying it completes the Sunday observance, the Lord's Day, by adding a small number. Of significant feasts. And the fifth precept, uh, Sam, could you read that for us? The fifth precept, you shall observe and the prescribed days of fasting and abstinence, ensures the times of ascesis and penance, which prepare us for the liturgical feast and help us acquire mastery over our instinct of freedom. So the precept itself is fairly vague. It just says you will observe the prescribed days of fasting and abstinence. What are the prescribed days of fasting and abstinence? Well, we'll come on to that in a bit. Um, but that there are days that are prescribed. And then as I say, the Catechism says five precepts, but then it immediately gives a, a sixth, which doesn't number as the sixth precept, but... Um, Victor, could you read that one? 
Uh, note that the catechism doesn't specify how much. Um, so traditionally, scripturally, 10% is what literally the word tithing means, to give a tenth. Um, to give a tenth of your income um, wouldn't necessarily mean a tenth to the church. Um, you could be giving 1% to the church and 9% to other charities or something. Anyway, the church doesn't specify what amount, but actually you are under precept, under obligation to support the needs of the church. If you're part of the church, you have a duty to support it. How many of your parishes talk about tithing? Not many. whole notion of tithing is what I've received comes from God and I need to render it back to him. That my money isn't mine, I only have it in a conditional sense. Okay, page seven. Um, this sheet I've just cut and pasted from the parish handouts I would give out with the parish newsletter periodically. Um, so I quote there from this document of John Paul II that I refer to. Um, among the more impressive observations he's gotten there is a series of quotations from martyrs in the early church. What were they martyred for? Getting to Sunday Mass. So when someone tells you all oh, Sunday Mass is difficult, Christians have died to get to Sunday Mass. Max, can you read that little section? The early Christians accepted martyrdom. So a series of quotations there. So these are each quotation is a different saint, a different martyr. Um, without without fear of any kind, we have celebrated the Lord's Supper because it cannot be missed. That is our law. Cannot live without the Lord's Supper. Yes, I went to the assembly and I celebrated the Lord's Supper with my brothers and sisters because I am a Christian. Why do we do it? Because I am a Christian. It's just what we do. I know that today, you know, many parts of the world, China in particular, we might think of, there are many persecuted Christians that are risking their jobs, risking their security, risking their lives even to get to Sunday Mass. And we're complaining that I'll miss the football game. Um, then under obligation, um, so the first quote there from the catechism, um, we've already have, have had, haven't we? But the second quote it starts pastors. Pastors should remind the faithful that when they are away from home on Sundays, they are to take care to attend Mass wherever they may be.
you know, when I was young, when we would travel somewhere to some strange town, first thing we would do is we would drive to where the Catholic Church was and there'd be a sign outside the church saying when Sunday Mass was. These days with Google, you can do all that um, in advance. So there's kind of even less of an excuse to be, to be not going or traveling. Some of these Catholic Church's websites are pretty difficult. Yeah, that would have to be conceded. Um, but it's still a lot easier. So you can figure out where a church is with Google. Um, and in terms of obligation, if you've done your research and you found a Mass um, and you turn up and there isn't one, well, I think that would be grounds for them not being obliged. You've, you've done your kind of due diligence um, and the website fails you. When it says attend, does it mean that the priest should say mass himself or just attend a mass as like the congregation? So is your question about the priest's behavior or the people's behavior? The priest's behavior. So I, as a priest, what should I, um, yeah, that's, um, I should be saying mass every day. Um, now, the law of the church was relaxed after the Second Vatican Council so that the obligatory status of me saying Mass every day has been softened. So that, particularly when I'm traveling, therefore, I, need, I have less... I need to be less scrupulous about worrying about missing Mass. So, for example, when I traveled here at the start of the semester, I spent 25 hours non-stop on the road. Um, and I didn't have the capacity in any of those places to say Mass. So I did say Mass at the, on the day that started one 25, hour, 25 hours and the night of the other. So actually I did in the end. But I did, as I was telling myself late night, that I think that would have been grounds for saying I'm not obliged in that context. But I, as, a, as a priest, I should be offering Mass, not just attending. That's what a priest does. And that I do that even when I can't get to Mass. Uh, rather, I don't have a congregation. And so, for example, here, you'll observe sometimes the priests aren't with you at the community Mass. Um, well, the church documents say we shouldn't be required to always be concelebrating, because concelebrating is a slightly weird thing as a priest. It's not normal. So that sometimes I will deliberately not join the community in order to be a main celebrant at Mass by myself, to aid my priestly focus in what I'm doing. Nick, would you mind reading? So there's a little question I've, I've subtitled Time for God, and this is two different quotes from John Paul II. Sunday is a day of joy and rest, precisely because it is the Lord's day, the day of the risen Lord. You cannot be afraid to give your time to Christ. Yes, let us open our time to Christ, that he may cast light upon it and give it direction. 
and one knows the secret of time and the secret of eternity, and he gives us his day as an ever new gift of his love. The rediscovery of the day is a grace which we must implore, not only so that we may live the demands of faith to the full, but also so that we may respond to con concretely to the deepest human yearnings. Time given to Christ is never time lost, but is rather time gained, so that our relationships and indeed our whole life may become more profoundly human. So those are two quotations I've used repeatedly in preaching over the years. I think it's not a difficult point to articulate, but you know, time given to Christ is never time lost. It's time regained. And as a priest and as a seminarian, you know, we do often struggle with our own prayer routines. And that's a principle to be thinking ourselves. Time given to God is never time lost. Okay, finally, over the page, last page is just specifying some details about fasting and Friday abstinence. So I say, church law determines specific days when fasting is obligatory, as we noted earlier in the fifth. Oh dear. Yes, the fifth precept. I had to hesitate. I do know the Ten Commandments, Uh, and then I'm actually let's let's read through this. So fasting and abstinence on Ash Wednesday and Good Friday. So all Catholics age fourteen and older are required to abstain. Uh, Josh, can you read that quotation? So these two quotations are from the Church law on this, which was articulated after the Council by Paul the Sixth. The law of abstinence forbids. The law of abstinence forbids the eating of milk. Excuse me. Forbids the eating of meat, but eggs, milk products, and condiments made from meat may be eaten. Fish and all cold-blooded animals may be eaten. Frogs, clams, turtles, etc. Okay, so you catch a turtle in Lake George, you can have that on a Friday in Lent. Um, yeah, Sam? Why, why is cold-blooded animals okay? Is that too big? Uh, tradition. So, um, and that can be differently formulated at different times in the church's history. So, in the East, if you were Greek Orthodox, or I'm not entirely sure of the exact practice, but I think the Eastern Rite Catholics differ with us, so that eggs and milk products, I think, aren't allowed by the Greek Orthodox. Um, so it's, you're losing something, but you're not losing much. And I guess the general thing is that cold-blooded animals are generally considered, not considered, very nice to eat. Steak, lamb, this is good stuff. Um, yes, you can eat a snake. It's rarely considered a, a, as appetizing an alternative. Um, condiments. So, something that is made out of meat is not considered in current church law to be meat itself. So that liquid bacon, that only Americans would invent such a product, liquid bacon is um, derived from meat, um, but it isn't meat. 
but I suspect it may never have seen me anywhere in the production chain. But um, anyway, just because it tastes like meat, it's not meat, according to church law. Um, Catholics age 18 and older, but under age 59, are required to fast. Um, the law of fast prescribes, so this is Ash Wednesday and Good Friday, only one full meal a day to be taken. In addition, two lighter meals are permitted to maintain strength according to one's needs, whereas eating between meals is not permitted. But liquids, including milk and fruit juices, are allowed. Um, so, those of you that are into juicing vegetables and whatever, if you put in, um, it says a fruit juice, it explicitly allows fruit juice. Um, you know, the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. You could make a fruit juice that has got a lot in it, that's a meal. Well, in fact, people do and eat that all the time. Um, and then you can chug it down all day um, and not really be fasting at all. So the letter of the law, what's obliged, is what is specified. But if someone's querying you on that, you should know what the letter is, but also encourage them on the spirit of it. You know, Jesus died on Good Friday. You should be suffering a little. It should feel And you all know the law with respect to Friday absence now? Well, I've specified it there. I'm not going to read it out. But it varies country by country. So in England now, we're actually under obligation to not eat meat on a Friday. In America, that obligation only holds on Fridays of Lent. All right, let's close with the glory of God.